one of the words that just keeps showing up for me and for us here is simply the word thoughtfulness. It's always been an important word for us. Um, and I think uh, all the more so, um, we want to encourage a thoughtful way of being in the world and um, trust that this class and the other things we're doing this semester will be that. I do want you all to know that we do have a couple other things going on. Uh, Monday evening we did a Zoom reading group on the theme of Christian imagination. We were um, looking at a book by a woman named Zena Hitz. Um, and it's on sort of the, uh, just the life of the mind. Uh, in two weeks, uh, we are actually going to interview her live. Um, and uh, that will be a good event. And then we'll continue with some readings on the idea of Christian imagination. Um, we are also doing a class on Dante that Mike did over the summer, Mike Zacassis, and we're continuing it right now, reading Purgatorio. Uh, that will uh, convene at 1 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, the best way to get in on that is to contact Mike Zacassis directly or just send a note to the, um, to the study center here if you want to be a part of it. And then Mike is also in a director's, offering a director's class. Um, last spring, some of you mentioned you were in that class where Mike did this thing on, on uh, sort of the moral and spiritual dimensions of time. Um, when Mike first suggested that to me, however long ago that was, I kind of looked at him strangely and said, really a whole semester thinking about time? And then we started talking and that class just unfolded in the most wonderful ways. Um, Mike kind of worked from an Augustinian notion of um, the good life as being rightly ordered loves. And I encourage you to take that idea and run with it. <laughs> Um, that, that, that the moral life is a set of relationships, of rightly ordered loves, of teaching oneself to love what ought to be loved and not to love what ought not to be loved, and then ordering those loves rightly as well. Um, and when you think in those terms, everything comes into view. And so things like time and place come into view. So last semester it was timely virtues. Um, this semester it's displaced. Um, the question of the body and embodiment um, in uh, and sort of the moral and spiritual dimensions of place. Um, still room in both of Mike's classes, so if you or friends want to get in on that, um, I'd love to see folks uh, joining in, in on that one. And then this one is the uh, reading of the Gospels class, um, and it's one that I've been uh, privileged to do a few times over the 20 years that I've been here at the Study Center. Um, and so glad to be back in and doing it again this year. Um, we'll do, uh, do it both semesters. We'll get ourselves sort of halfway through in the fall semester and then pick up again in, in January and finish out. Um, just by way of introducing myself, uh, it's great to be meeting several of you here for the first time. Um, my name, as the screen says, is Richard Horner. Um, I'm the director here at the Study Center and um, been very thankful to be here for now just shy of 20 years. Uh, we came in 2001. Um, at the time, the center was just starting and they were looking for a director. And they were looking for someone who had a com combination of uh, academic background and pastoral background. I'm ordained in the Presbyterian Church and um, had finished a PhD at the University of Virginia in intellectual history. And then um, was at the University of Virginia at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture. Um, as a fellow there and, and then uh, left that in 2001 and came here and, and took up this position. So it's been a, a wonderful position for me. I've been delighted to have the connections we have with the university and obviously the interaction 
with both faculty and students in our neighborhood. Um, I trust you know us as well by our coffee houses, by anything we do. Um, many people know us only by our coffee house and don't even know that there are other aspects to who we are and what we do. We are momentarily closed at the coffee house, but we are hopeful and expectant to be open again Monday morning and at least limited service and uh, encourage you to watch for that and follow that on Facebook and Instagram or wherever you uh, live your lives these days. Um, I am also uh, happy to be married to my wife, April, and we have three children, two of whom graduated from the University of Florida um, and another from the uh, University of Central Florida. Um, our youngest is still in town, that's Jenna. Uh, some of you may know Jenna from her artwork. She's a mural muralist here in town, and we are mostly known in town as Jenna Horner's parents, um, and quite happy to be known that way. Um, this class is meant to be just what the, what the syllabus describes, um, and if you uh, want to pull that up, again, it's what I sent to you this morning. Um, just have a look at it together. Um, what happens when you read the four New Testament gospel accounts alongside each other? How do their agendas, perspectives, and editorial policies distinguish them from each other? How shall we make sense of the contradictions that appear when we place them alongside each other? What themes and aims do they share? What shall we make of these four books that have given us the picture of Jesus of Nazareth that has made him as famous an individual as anyone who has ever lived? class will be rooted in a careful reading of the text, um, but it will also stay at a sort of a survey level, I would say. Um, we will keep all four Gospels in view in a way that will highlight both the challenges and the rewards and richness that follow from setting these accounts alongside each other and allowing their different styles, perspectives, and agendas to emerge. And then I do say in the syllabus, no matter how you're coming at this, uh, whether you know these Gospels well or hardly know them at all, whether you're coming in terms of a sort of Christian conviction or coming from any other uh, vantage point or perspective, I'm just so glad you're in the conversation. Um, the more differences, honestly, among us um, and honest questions, doubts, thoughts, um, imaginations, the better. So um, I'm glad we're all in it. And if you if you are looking at these for sort of um, a first time, or, or not, not necessarily the first time, but maybe with just less familiarity, please don't let that stop you from just speaking up with your questions. Um, it, it's easy to feel like, because we are a Christian study center, um, I am a Christian, um, I read these documents in a way that I have become convinced and, and had become convinced back there, sort of around your age, probably in college, that these records do in fact give us an accurate picture of this guy, Jesus, um, and that it has made all the difference in my life. So yeah, I do come with those kinds of convictions, but I, but I also come with a sense that we've got these four fascinating pieces of literature in front of us. Um, I'm not gonna pretend to be a New Testament scholar or a gospel scholar. I take the scholarship seriously and try to keep learning as I teach this class myself. But I think this is as much as anything a study, uh, sort of a literary study, the Bible as literature. Um, these four short books have been placed alongside each other for pretty much as long as we've ever known them. I think every version that we have uh, has the four of them together except for um, some fragments and, and, and other pieces. But, but, but typically these four have been showing up um, alongside each other in codexes 
uh, or, or book form uh, since uh, in the second century. Um, and, and so we've got these four pieces of literature that then form a single piece of literature in a sense and, are, and obviously kind of belong together. They are um, about the same primary individual, namely Jesus, and they were received by the early Christian church um, as the uh, sort of, as the account that was understood to be um, an accurate and fair account of who Jesus was. That of course is its own complicated story. Um, as far as the formation of the New Testament as a canon or as a collection of books, um, that, doesn't, that doesn't really settle in in a very cleared, clear way until probably the third or fourth century. But the Gospels themselves, uh, I would argue, um, and there are other people that I'd be glad to point you to, um, N.T. Wright, Chuck Hill, some of these New Testament scholars, who, who, who see these four Gospels as pretty clearly received by the early church, um, not just imposed by political power or something, uh, you know, three centuries later. So I think these, these books do emerge pretty early on um, in this form. They have a, a shared focus in terms of who the main character is, and yet they also have these really distinctive approaches. I don't know whether you've thought of these Gospels as, and the Gospel writers as having editorial policies, but they do. Um, like any author, um, the people writing these books make choices as to what they will include and what they will not include. They have sources that they're gonna draw on, uh, both oral and written, I think. Um, and they have ways of presenting the material as well um, as those choices. So that even where, uh, say, three or even four of the Gospels would have the same episode or writing, um, they will be presented in four different ways. Um, and then you've got some of the places where each Gospel is completely unique, where, where what you find is only in that one uh, Gospel and not in the other three. Um, so I, I find this... Um, if nothing else, it's just a really fascinating study. Now, I won't try to get into a lot of the critical questions, um, and, and uh, I, I don't identify with a particular critical uh, or scholarly approach, but, but we'll draw on various things. Um, the notion of, of what's called redaction criticism probably comes in as much as anything where, where it's a question of how the books formed and then sort of how to think of them alongside each other. Um, and, and, in, and then, um, as far as something like authorship and dating, um, I'll just refer to the authors as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, there are always arguments that can be made as to, as to whether that's a fair way to think of them, but for no other reason than for convenience, I'm just gonna refer to them in those ways. Um, and at least in a couple of cases, I think we've got pretty, pretty good reason to associate the names with the books. Um, and uh, if you want, I am, I am incidentally gonna have office hours every week on Monday and Tuesday. Um, and certainly invite these kind of conversations on beyond the class on anything you want to go into. Again, without claiming to be a great expert on some of these questions. But at any rate, for authorship, I'll just sort of refer to them generally by the names of the Gospels and as the authors. Um, and then as far as dating, I won't get into dating per se, but one of the things we will talk about because we're trying to relate these Gospels to each other is the sequence in which they were probably written. Um, that's a fascinating question in its own right. Um, that question will be one we address and we'll try to think through as we go, maybe even touch on it a little bit this morning before we're done. Um, just to go back to the syllabus then for a moment, um, 
this class is meeting Wednesdays at 11.45. Uh, COVID is hopefully not gonna affect this class because none of you is breathing on me at the moment. Um, uh, let's see, blah, blah, blah. An audio recording will be available each week, so if you miss this class and wanna get the, the uh, makeup, we won't record the actual um, video of the Zoom, um, but we will have an audio recording available and it will be available hopefully within 24 hours of the class. Um, the other thing I really want to point out, and, and I want to make known anywhere I can, is that there are sort of two levels of being in touch with the study center and us with you. One is um, for you to go on our website, go down to the very bottom where it says something about staying in the loop, and you just put in your name and your email address. You're, you may or may not already be on there. If you're not, I'd encourage you to do that. But then also on our website, you'll see three boxes as you scroll down, and the box on the right says newsletter podcast. Um, and you need to go ahead and subscribe to that. Um, for one, the newsletter has been going on for uh, most of this calendar year. I think there's a lot of important good work going on in there, um, mostly that's come from Mike Sacassis and myself. But it's also the way to get the other content, things like the audio file of this class and um, links to other Zoom things that we're doing. Um, so it's sort of two levels. The first one is just information. The second level is content, and you get the content by subscribing um, to, to the newsletter, and then you'll see that includes other things as well. Um, on the back of the syllabus, um, as it says, there are no assignments, there are no quizzes, tests, papers, a great frustration to me as a would-be professor. Um, I'd love for this class to meet three times a week and for you to be taking quizzes and tests and writing papers, but so be it. Um, we'll settle for what we got. Um, I, I do really encourage you to do the readings that are listed there with each class. Um, it's there for you and you can see it. Uh, feel free to use whatever translation you would like to use. Feel free to explore a bit. Um, I'd love to see uh, different versions represented. And if anybody um, wants to bring in another language, whether original or another translation, those are also uh, often um, sort of give additional insight. Um, finally, as I say at the bottom, um, I am holding regular office hours this semester. We'll do that on the porch out front of Pascal's um, over there by the door. On Mondays, I'll be there from 1 to 2. On Tuesdays, from 2 to 3. And if those are not convenient times, let me know. We'll try to work something else out. Um, and my email address is there. Don't hesitate to use it. Any questions on any logistics or stuff? Good. Um, well, I do want to go ahead and just look at the openings of each of these four Gospels this morning. So if you want to take, um, either get uh, a copy of the New Testament of the Gospels or just take the handout that I've sent you, and um, normally I'd have students read, but I think since we're doing it this way, I'll just go ahead and read. Um, so listen to these four. Um, see what you make of them. What does just this much of each of these Gospels tell us about the Gospel? What does it indicate about the author? What he's up to, what his aims might be, or an audience might be, or what the agenda or perspective might be, a style of writing. And then see what it is that distinguishes each from the other three. 
what would you say is the one thing particularly maybe that distinguishes each from the other three? And is there anything that even right up front um, unifies the four of them that, 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 that the four share? Uh, so let me start <coughs> with Matthew, first chapter, the first 17 verses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa, and Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, born who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Mark 1, 1 to 14 then reads this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And there went out to him all the country of Judea and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and had a leather girdled around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened 
and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, with thee I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then in Luke chapter one, just the first five verses, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us, by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. And then Luke begins, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he and his wife, and, and he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And that story continues. It's the story of the birth of John. And into that story will be woven the birth of Jesus. And then finally, John 1, first 14 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light, the true light that enlightens every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own, and his own people received him not. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Um, let me just clarify the one term that may be familiar to you, but not necessarily obvious to you, and that is this identification of Jesus as the Christ. You'll see it in both Matthew and Mark, um, the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, and then at the very end of Matthew's reading, um, as a reference to the Christ. And then Mark's gospel begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, the word Christ is an English transliteration of the Greek term Christos. Um, a transliteration as opposed to a translation means simply that you take the sounds of a word and you translate those sounds into another language or into another alphabet. So Christos becomes Christ in English. Meanwhile, Christos would have been the Greek rendering for the Hebrew term Messiah, and uh, I, won't I won't pretend to try to give it the right pronunciation as a Hebrew term, um, but uh, when it translates or transliterates into English, you get the term Messiah. 
So, Messiah, or whatever it might be, uh, and Josh, feel free to weigh in. Um, but uh, oh, sorry, it's Mashiach. Mashiach. Okay, thank yeah. you. Yeah. yeah, good. We've got a, a sheen instead of a sin, do we? Um, at any rate, Mashiach becomes Messiah and 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 Christos, and then Christos becomes Christ. So think of these four terms as interchangeable, um, pretty much as you read them. Um, I think I've got here, and I meant to check it, I don't identify it, I think this is the Revised Standard Version that we're looking at here. I'll typically use the Revised Standard Version and the New American Standard Version. Um, and, and I, and, but I, th I think that it's the New Revised Standard Version that actually puts the term Messiah here instead of Christ. The Book of the Genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Um, it's interesting to see what the different English translations will do on this question. But I did want to just make sure that we understood that. And so it's linking us into the Hebrew literature, Hebrew religion, Hebrew teaching about a Messiah figure who is an anointed one, which is basically what the term is, is alluding to. And then the claim here then is obviously that Jesus is being identified as that anointed one or that, that figure and then being called the Christ. Um, what strikes you, what, what strikes you, um, and we'll just do this as best we can, feel free to wave your finger if you want to make a comment or just unmute and speak up. Um, Matthew's gospel, what distinguishes Matthew's gospel from the other three, would you say? It strikes you right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Right, we're clearly rooted in the Hebrew Bible here um, in what then from the New Testament standpoint uh, would be thought of as the Old Testament. Um, yeah, this is a listing of characters who all appear in those books. Any sense? Yeah, Go ahead. Oh, oh, I was just going to say it sounds the most Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did wonder why it started with Abraham, though, and not just David, because um, it would seem more important to just have the lineage from David from like Messiah standpoint. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. The opening phrase connects Jesus to both these figures, David and Abraham, and then sort you sort of get these two paragraphs: one rooting from Abraham uh, to David, and then from David to the deportation, and from deportation. To Jesus. I, I think the lineage there, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is Israel, um, and then uh, the, Judah and his brothers are the 12 tribes, I think linking back into those patriarchs is pretty crucial for Matthew uh, in this account. And then linking from there up to David, and then from David on through. Um, any sense then for what you think Matthew's aims are just based on this kind of an opening? Um, I have a thought on that. Um, kind of going back to what Josh was saying, like why would he go back all the way? Why would he um, you know, make all this effort to list all these names? Mm -hmm. And I think at the very end he's he's listing, you know, there are 14 generations between Abraham to David and David to 
the deportation of Babylon and from deportation of Babylon to Christ. So the numbers there, like knowing Matthew's background as a tax collector, right? Was mm-hmm. it was it Matthew? Was yes. <laughs> um, you know, he's maybe someone that people didn't necessarily trust or like as much. So he kind of had something to prove. Um, and being a Jewish um, person at the time, he would have known the prophecies and known that you know the number 14 is significant for perfection and multiplying that by three is also for perfection so like this guy is the christ and like here's why you know believe me (laughs) and they don't trust me but you know he's kind of a got something to prove here that's interesting yeah could be um if you if you do the careful study of these lists you'll find out that the 14 is not actually quite accurate um which is an interesting um, thing in its own right. A lot is made of the numbers um, by people, including the 14s and the 14s breaking down into sevens and therefore into weeks. Um, there are all sorts of uh, possible implications um, and other ways that Matthew's gospel seems to connect back into the Hebrew scriptures, including things like the Pentateuch and the Ten Commandments. Um, I will just say, um, uh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Um, Rats, it may come back to me a minute. This happens to me these days. Um, But the, um, oh, rats. Oh, I know, yeah. So, So the 14 being not exactly accurate, does seem to have a little bit of a heuristic um, effect as well, that this may be a a daunting list for for us sitting here looking at it today, but it would not have been crazy for those names to have been known and many of them pretty well recognized. One would hope a little bit maybe, uh, a a little bit like your ability to recognize um, names of presidents of the United States, Um, and and yet I hesitate to say that. I, I think Jewish young people 2,000 years ago might have been able to do a much better job of giving you that listing than, than you or I included might do of our presidents. But, but you can sort of take those U.S. presidents and group them, and if nothing else, go from Washington to Lincoln and Lincoln to whoever and, and you know, something like that. There, there's a little bit of that going on here, but, but Matthew is very much wanting to connect this story into that story, and his argument is going to flow from that kind of rootedness in the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, when you look at Mark, what strikes you about Mark? What's, what's the character of that opening, would you say? Any, anything strike you particularly? Well, uh, we'll yeah, Brian, go ahead. Yeah, it just hits me sort of as like we're like in meteor race or whatever. It's like, hey, stuff's going on. We're starting with it. Let's go. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's like I guess a little bit of intro, but then here's the action. Right. Yeah, well put. I think um, Mark seems to want to get off and running on this story. Um, Probably if I were to put his introductory comment in, it would just be the first three verses or something. I, I, I don't know, maybe into the fourth verse or something. Um, but it, Mark moves very quickly through anything that could be called introductory to Jesus's public ministry and to um, Jesus stepping out in verse 14 and 15 
and sort of publicly saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, we will find out that all three of the other gospels um, take us all the way into chapter four before we get to the point that Mark arrives at in verse 14 of chapter one. So he's very quickly moving to that place of a kind of an adult um, interaction with Jesus. No birth narratives, very little by way of John as, as a baptizer, and very little uh, other than quick references to these other things like the baptism of Jesus and the wilderness experience. Um, and, and, and in English, it's kind of smoothed out, but in, in its sort of Greek form, in, in, the, in the version we would have had it, it runs like, it reads like a run-on sentence. And, and from verse 4 almost down to um, verse 15, it pretty much is a run-on sentence. I counted the other day again, um, the word in Greek, or a couple of words, but it's mostly just the one word in Greek that's translated by the word and, occurs almost 20 times in just those verses. It's kind of got a breathless quality. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and boom, 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 boom. And you're very quickly moving right along. The next verse, um, after what appears here, Jesus calls, begins calling disciples. And, um, and, and my own view on Mark is that it really is kind of told from the standpoint of being a disciple. And, and we'll, we can watch that, and you can see what you think of that, but that's kind of one of my theoretical stances about this book and how it's written, um, that it's fed, there is a typically thought of an association with the Apostle Peter, um, with Mark, but it's not just that. It's a kind of a viewpoint of followers of Jesus, and I think we see that from the very beginning, where you kind of are engaged very early on as an adult would-be follower, and the question is always right there, and it runs right through to the end of the book, um, right through a couple of very short, distinctive passages in Mark. Virtually everything in Mark is in the other Gospels somewhere. And then right through to the uh, resurrection account, which is a truncated account um, in Mark and, and leaves us with a question. And I think it, it, the whole thing has that sense of what would it mean and, and how do you see this person if you were walking alongside him as some kind of a disciple? Um, and then just to finish up, because we are just a few minutes away, um, in Luke's gospel, it's kind of nice because we actually get a statement of purpose from the author, um, which we don't get in the other three. Uh, John eventually gives us one in the last chapter um, of what we know is the last chapter. And understand all the verses and chapter divisions are artificial and made up in subsequent centuries. Um, but at any rate, we'll still refer to them. Um, but Luke gives us this statement of purpose at the beginning. Um, other people have written about this stuff, he says, um, as it was delivered to us from the beginning from people who were eyewitnesses witnesses and ministers of the word. Um, it seems good to me also, having studied these things closely for some time, to write an orderly account. And he's addressing it to someone known as Theophilus. Um, who is probably an actual person, but it's interesting, the name means lover of God. And so it, it's conceivable that it's, a, it's sort of a fictitious recipient, if you will, of the gospel. Um, and then Luke, as we have it as a gospel, is kind of like Luke 1, and then the book of Acts would be Luke 2. And so you've got this guy who, who is writing as much as a historian as any of the four that we've got. Um, for those of us who come late in modernity, where something called history has developed as a discipline over the last couple of centuries. 
Luke is the one that we're probably most comfortable with uh, in thinking of a, as, a, as a historian. Uh, even there, you need to be very careful. Ancient historians um, didn't play by the same rules as more modern historians. Um, but I think for many of us, we kind of uh, feel comfortable with this, this approach that Luke is suggesting he's taking. And I would, and I would say it's safe to, to um, think that when he says an orderly account, he is meaning a, a chronologically ordered account. Um, and again, take that with a grain of salt, but I, but I think, and we'll see reasons for that as we go, but I think um, when he says he wants to give an orderly account, um, my guess is he's got, as he says, other narratives available to him. Um, I think those other narratives take different forms. They would have included, I think, Matthew and Mark in some version or another, as well as other sources and that now Luke wants to try to give something like a more chronological account and then incorporate some other material that he doesn't see uh, in the other accounts. And so then what you get is this narrative starting in verse five where Luke just starts telling the story. Um, and, and that becomes some of the most famous passages in all of scripture. Probably it is the, the birth narrative of not only of John the baptizer, but then of Jesus as well. Um, and so you have the best known verses probably um, that, that anyone knows that follow. But it, but it becomes immediately this kind of, oh, I love stories, you know, and here comes a great story and it involves two babies for crying out loud. So who could ask for anything more than that? Um, and we'll throw in some angels and shepherds and we're, we're there. At any rate, so Luke has this kind of historian's uh, approach. And then John, what do we say about John? I, it's totally different way in, isn't it? And, and I hope that if nothing else really strikes you this morning, it's how different these four introductions are from each other. Do, do they strike you as they strike me? It's just very different ways into the story. I find that fascinating because we, we, the four are always there together. They are ultimately about the same person and arguing, I would suggest, the same fundamental argument about him but when you start into these four texts, um, they're, they're strikingly different from each other and, and each really unique. Um, it's hard to find anything in all four that is shared by them at this point. And, and while you may know who the, who the central character is gonna be, we don't even quite have him in view yet in the introductions. Um, John the baptizer shows up in a couple of them. Um, the notion of the Christ shows up in a couple of them, but not all of them. Uh, then you have different terms. The, the notion of the word is showing up in John's gospel, the only son of the father. Um, but you get this great sort of theological, philosophical uh, stance in John's gospel, um, where he's going to be giving us a pretty rich theology of incarnation throughout the entire narrative. Uh, a, a rich theology, particularly of father and son, but really a fully sort of Trinitarian understanding. Um, and he's going to be doing it in a way that is also philosophically engaged, if you will, so that his embrace of this term logos, which is translated as word, um, is going to be the kind of a term that in his, in his um, uh, early antique situation is, is a term that, that uh, would be a, a, a known term in sort of the philosophical circles. Logos could be translated in other ways. It could be translated by the word reason, for instance. 
And, and there are places where it is translated that way, and, 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 and even in the New Testament, much less elsewhere. But I have no quibble with it being translated as word here, and then seen as a person of the Trinity who is divine himself, and then comes into human form in this incarnation where the word becomes flesh and lives among us. Um, John's gospel is also, on the one hand, thought to offer some of the easiest Greek. Um, and so students who are learning Greek will often be directed to the gospel of John to sort of start their studies. And it will also create some of the most puzzling translation questions. Um, this first 14 verses has several of them in it. Uh, I'd love to linger over them and, and mess around with them a bit. We can't do that today and probably won't take time, but I'll just give you that teaser to say that there are always interesting questions going on um, in these Gospels, and where you would like to bring them up, please do so. Um, the uh, fact is, though, we need to call it a day today, since we're at 1235. Um, thanks so much for coming in on this. Um, I'll linger for a minute. If anybody wants to do the same, please do so. And um, I will try to make sure any handouts I have for you, you will have in advance of the class. We won't have a handout every week. You should have available somewhere, somehow, a copy of the New Testament, so you can be looking at these assignments um, on your own somehow. I won't be providing the text for you every week like we did today, um, but I wanted to be able to do it here with these introductions um, for maybe obvious reasons. Um, so yeah, keep reading. Um, the question I'll leave you with, uh, it would be fun to talk about, but I'll just leave you with, is if you had to choose just one of the four to keep reading, which one has gotten your attention most? Um, that's always an interesting question um, as to whether it would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Um, but uh, keep reading whichever one that is, but do read the first two chapters of Matthew, the first two chapters of Luke for our next session, okay? And uh, thanks a lot. See you in a week.